We seem to have a problem here. Uh, I wonder why it's... uh, Technical difficulties? No, we're on air. All right. But um, usually uh, my show opening comes on. I'm looking at my engineer, and my engineer is working, looking at me, but... Uh, suffice it to say, <clears throat> well, this is Small Business Digest Radio, and this is Don Mazzella. And uh, despite this uh, uh, seemingly uh, problem, we have a great show for you tonight. Our first guest right on the, the air is Manu Ricci. He's director of Inventus Capital Partners. He talks. He's here to talk about early-stage startup financing and highlights the post-money valuation issue of startup dilution. Now, that's a mouthful, but by the time we finish this, because he is really an expert on this, we're going to know a lot more than we ever thought we wanted to know. But uh, uh, as we always ask our guests, Manu, am I pronouncing it right, Manu? Uh, That's correct. Welcome to the program. Tell us a little bit about yourself first, and then we'll go into everything else. Well, uh, thanks, John, for having me uh, speak to your audience today. Um, you know, my personal journey started uh, you know, roughly 24 years ago when I actually moved to the U.S. from India. Um, I moved to California. Um, I went to high school here and then moved on to the East Coast uh, to do my undergrad in Boston University. And then I got my master's uh, at Columbia uh, in New York. Um, in the meantime, I've actually done three startups uh, so I have a lot of experience raising money on this side of the table, uh, and uh, um, uh, I've worked at Google. I ran, uh, I launched Gmail, Google Calendar. Uh, so very hands-on product uh, experience. Uh, then I left Google to do a gaming startup. I raised money. Uh, eventually got sold. Um, then I went to work um, uh, for News Corp and ran the digital division, so I was uh, working for uh, Rupert Murdoch's uh, Evil Empire for about a year. Uh, <clears throat> and then I decided uh, I was actually doing lots of angel investing, and I had been in my travels to Brazil, India, Canada, so I actually had been meeting some really amazing entrepreneurs and, and, and um, uh, sort of financing them to the early stages with my personal money. Uh, and uh, a venture firm called Inventus Capital Partners, who I started collaborating with because, you know, for $50,000 I would put in, they would put in, you know, a million, two million dollars, so my money would go further and, and, and you yeah, know, sort of see the pay of light as well. And, you know, after four, five years of courting, uh, I joined uh, them as a partner. Uh, so I've been doing my current job for roughly about four and a half years. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to tell you more details about uh, you know, how to raise financing, especially at the early stages. Well, that's what this whole pro- that's why you're here. That's why the program. So, the, as I always say, the floor is yours. Go right ahead. Oh, great. Um, yeah, so just, I'll give you a little bit of background on my on my firm. So, uh, Inventus Capital you know, Partners about you know we have 150 million dollars under management. Uh, six of us, uh, and and we look at companies in the early stage, typically software tech companies um, you know, that are looking to change um, you know how we how we play, how we work, um, um, and you know, we roughly have created about $30 billion worth of wealth in exit value to our founders. Um, you know, so we've had, the firm has had a very long history of producing 
value you know for for founders for teams you know for shareholders um yeah so so uh, i sort of i mean I'm, I'm sure a lot of you have seen shark tank and and sort of seen this is how financing actually happens so uh, hopefully i'm not bursting your bubble um to telling you that you know some some of the showmanship you see on tv is not really how real world happens yeah but there's some truths to how they happen but you know the personalities are not the ones you sort of see on tv um so let me let me set the scenario in terms of if you are, uh, you know, starting a company. You know, it's you and your friend. You know, somebody you worked with. Uh, you have an idea, a dog, and a business plan, uh, but nothing much more than that, right? Uh, you go to a bank, you're not going to get any money uh, because they need collateral, and you don't have any at this point. And you're typically either raising money from friends and family, um, or if it's a business idea that has a large enough market and the team is solid, you know, somebody like us will, will finance it. So, but then valuations are very hard, and this is what we're here to talk about, right? So, how do you value something that's just two people, three people, you know, um, uh, with, with a business plan? Uh, and the conundrum comes in: you, know, you can't use any of the MBA valuations. When I went to Columbia, you had you know discounted cash flow models, uh, all these complicated ways of actually measuring how much a company is worth, so you can actually put a value to it. You can sell equity for for cash. So those things get thrown out of the door. Um, and then it's, it's, what is can the fair value? Can I interrupt Sorry. you for just one minute? Uh, and because uh, this is great, but um, isn't it true that the first thing is people like you look at the team and say, "Can they do it?" And isn't that the important first step? That's that's absolutely correct. So a lot of this is, is based on on you know uh, our experience and figuring out if, if this team is somebody we'd like to back. Right? Uh, do they have the fire? Do they have the talent, the background? Uh, you know, and and um, you know, uh, quite often that it comes down to that, right? Because failure rates are pretty high, right? Um, only about two or three companies in ten will actually make it through. Um, uh, you know, so but yeah, I could be wrong. You, know, you could come raise money. I could say no. You could go to the next guy. They could say yes. So so the key is finding. It's like finding your spouse. You have to find. You know, somebody who can believe in your vision idea and and how how able you're to sell um, um, uh, your product as well. So uh, I want because I want to set stage because you're talking about probably the next most important uh, step. Uh, if you're you're a, a team, you really have to convince uh, who your funders, whether they're family friends, that you really have uh, the fire in the mm-hmm. belly and the. Uh, Experience or the talent to do it, and then then comes perhaps the second most important part of it, which is what you're going to talk about. And I just wanted to set the stage uh, for that. And now, because um, you, I know you know what you're talking about, and you're certainly explaining it. So please, I won't interrupt again. No, no, no. This is actually perfect. Uh, no, I was just setting the stage to sort of say, okay, well, you, know, you convinced me that you know, this is the team. That we should finance. So we, we like the idea. You know, I, I call us dream merchants. You have a dream, and I'm I'm willing to buy your dream, right? And 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 that's what uh, the equity transfer takes place. So so you convince me. You know, we like the team, and now it's about valuation, and and it's really hard to figure out what the valuation would be, right? So so I'll give you some rules of thumbs, uh, so you can at least think through when you're raising money how you should actually think about the other side and your side, so you can actually get a transaction done. 
the thing is, you know, if you're the entrepreneur, you want to give as little as possible to get as much you know, money as you can, right? And, and, and on the other side, uh, the investor side, you you want to be able to 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 get a fair value uh, or take as much as you can for for the the cash you're going to get, right? And the key is to finding the happy medium where where you're not taking you're not capitalizing the company poorly, uh, taking too much upfront. And it's hard for them to raise subsequent rounds. And then for the entrepreneur to have enough ownership that they know how to build a company and have have the uh, incentives to do so. So, so that's that's what I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into. Uh, from the founder's perspective, and I've done this multiple times when I raise money for my companies, uh, my goal was always to reduce my financing risk. I have a lot of risk. I have market risk, team risk, competition, breathing down my neck. And I want to make sure that I have the money and, and the resources so that I can go execute, right? And if it takes me six months to raise financing versus, you know, three weeks to raise financing, and even if I can, you know, you know, I shouldn't be over-optimizing it. If I can get it, you know, uh, for 5%, 10 15% more equity, I should be able to to create enough value in the time. And, and that's what I'm going to talk about, what those two differences are, right? So... So you're wondering what the math is, and 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 and, and I think it all sort of comes down to numbers. Um, so I'll, I'll give you a formula to sort of think through. Um, so imagine you're looking to raise a million dollars for your company, um, and you sort of say, okay, well, if I can get twenty million dollar post money valuation, which is, yeah, you know, I give you a million dollars, it's a twenty million dollar. So you, I think the company is worth twenty million, you know, at this early stage. Uh, that means for the one million dollars, I'm giving away five percent of the company, right? Uh, um, and and so now you look on the other side and sort of say, well, if you if that valuation negotiated down to 10 million um, uh, for the same 1 million dollars you raised, now you're giving away 10% of the company, right? Uh, instead of 5%. Uh, now you've gone down from 5%, uh, you know, uh, sorry, 95% ownership to 90% ownership. Uh, on the other hand, the investor has doubled. You know the incentive on that side. It went from five percent to ten percent ownership. There's twice as more reasons for him to do the deal. Now, if you take the same logic further and sort of say, hey, you know, if that deal gets done at five million dollar valuation, right, for the same million, million dollars you want to raise for your company, um, you've gone from uh, ninety-five percent ownership to eighty percent ownership, right? But now you've incentivized the the other side, the investors that you're bringing on board. Uh, you know, by by 300%, right? So, you know, so if you think about it, you know, you gave an extra 15% away, but you ended up incentivizing the other side 300% more, uh, you know, from that math to to be able to do the deal. And and I think that's that's the the equation you look at. So it's not about oh, I gave up 5%, you got 5%. So it it is the it's the magnitude of what happens. And the key is if you're going to get rich at 95%. Because the company, you know, the, the idea worked really well, you will get rich at 80% as well. You will get rich at 60%. So, so that's how you, you sort of horse trade, right? It's all about, you know, it reminds me of the, the movie Life of Brian when you're in a Turkish market sort of negotiating back and forth. And, 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 and the ability to sort of sell is, is, is very paramount for an entrepreneur, right? And, and by the way, selling your idea or dream to me is actually easier than selling to your spouse or your mom, right? Because you know you've given up your really lucrative job at a, at a company, and now you're going to be working for peanuts trying to, to realize your dreams. And I think that's the harder part: selling somebody there. 
but so it's, it's a sales thing and you want to be able to move forward and sort of say, how do I get the money? How do I actually uh, build value and not get stuck on valuations as much? Because when you're playing at the margins, the difference isn't that much, right? Um, does, does that make sense? You, uh, or Don, if you have any questions? Uh, well, there? of course, uh, having raised money myself, it makes uh, a perfect sense. But uh, but let me let me throw scenarios at you that have happened to me, and it's interesting. You're um, uh, I, I had uh, several several people email me when they saw what the program was about, and uh, with with questions. So I'll I'll throw them um, now. Uh, we're talking five and ten percent, but oftentimes I've heard and, and seen in one occasion been involved in where the uh, what we're talking about here is seed money the money yeah. you go to prove the concept uh and so, sometimes you know people have asked for 30 or 40 percent of the company right off the bat now that, that seems an awful rich deal to me but um um uh, yeah, and you seem reasonable i mean Ten percent of a, of an idea at, at this stage is reasonable, but there are a lot of people out there that um, mm-hmm. uh, want more. How does one deal with situations like that? No, you're absolutely right. So I think, like anything else in the world, there is sophisticated investors and, and, and there's not so sophisticated investors, right? So so getting greedy too upfront, owning too much of the company, what what makes it so? So let's say you give somebody half a million dollars and you own thirty, forty percent of the company. And then when they go raise the next round of financing, um, the investor is going to look at them and say, okay, well, if I want to own another 20% of this company, now there's like 50%, you know, 60% ownership in, 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 um, you know, with, with, with the investors. And, the, and then you have to raise another round after that, depending on how many rounds you end up raising. That reduces the, the incentives that the, that the founder has to keep working, right? So you want to make sure... That, that you're equitably dividing the equity around so that the person who has the idea has enough incentive to keep doing it. Because if he decides to leave, uh, you have nothing left but, but a bunch of equity that's worth nothing, right? And I think that's the greed. So you have to be able to, to balance this out. So, so, the, so the thumb rule that I typically tell um, entrepreneurs when I'm entering them is you want to look at the Series A, you know, after your seed round, um, you know, your Series A when you, when you look at it, you should sort of fall in a category where you, you own you, the founders have about 40%, the investors have about 40%, and then 20% is in your employee pool for your senior management, all the entire employees that you're incentivizing them. So that you have a 40-40-20 sort of category. Um, you know, and then as, as, as the team is building value, um, you know, the subsequent rounds are cheap. You, know, you, you get a lot more money or a lot less dilution. Because now, now people are investing in something that has a history, has revenue, has traction. So the risk comes down. So every time you raise money, every time you hire an employee, every time you, you, you sell to a new uh, customer, you're basically reducing the risk and spreading it around, right? So, uh, so I, I warn people, I mean, if somebody is too greedy and wants too much, too much of a company, they end up screwing themselves in the process as well because, you know, um, uh, there isn't much value to build long term then. Well, you you sound you, you sound very reasonable, and I would recommend my audience to definitely, uh, if you have an idea, to, to go at least talk to to him because uh, he's sounding reasonable and smart about it. 
But uh, let me ask you a question, um, uh, and I, I, uh, tell people how to reach you and your company, please. Sure, um, a few different ways. Uh, you know, you, our website is inventuscap.com, uh, I-N-V-E-N-T-U-S-C-A-P.com. Uh, my email address is uh, manu at inventuscap.com. Uh, it's M-A-N-U. Uh, we're available on Twitter, Facebook, um, and all the social media as well. So um, hopefully it's not too hard to find us. Um, and, uh, yeah. But then let me ask you another question. Um, should you in your negotiations with uh, uh, you as the, um, uh, the company uh, ask that the, the uh, that the seed round, in order to maintain their position, uh, uh, also participate in future rounds? Or how do you, what do you recommend they do? That's one that's come up several times. Sorry, I, I didn't get the first part of the question. Well, you, you, you do a Series A and you end up with 10%. Yeah. And you, you do the next round, and let's, uh, the Series B, uh, uh, do you require? Uh, do you think it's a good idea for the uh, management to say to the A round, if you want to maintain your position, you have to participate in the second round, or do you just give them the option? Well, I mean, so yes, typically, you know, um, uh, most in the series A, you have pro rata rights. So the investors will ask for pro rata rights. So if you so let's say if a new company, if a new investor is coming in and everybody will get delivered by 20%, um, so, you know, you will have to then put up the additional money to maintain your status or, or you get diluted alongside, right? So so what, what typically happens in reality is that the company is doing really well and you have a lot of new investors coming in, they will try to push you, you know, because you know, they want to own more and then they will try not to have the old investors invest more. And and and, the, and, and that's fine as well from either perspective. And but if the company is doing you know, middling but not doing as well, the new investors typically require the old investors to do their pro rata because they want to see commitment, right? Um, they want because you know, no matter how much diligence you've done, somebody who's, on, who's been on the board for the last you know, year and a half uh, knows more about the company. I've read a today. great many books on how small business leaders should conduct their on a weekly basis, um, uh, you know, you know, uh, so what we bring to the table is pattern recognition. I've seen that you know, uh, movie play before, uh, and, and, and we can help our entrepreneurs you know, sort of avoid the mistakes that, that we've seen other people make before, uh, and, and hopefully they'll make new ones, but not the same ones. Uh, so I think there's a lot of mentoring, a lot of hand-holding, and, and that's, that's a leverage um, you know, between a uh, dumb money where, where you're raising money from somebody who has no idea about your business, doesn't help, just has the money. Uh, whereas, you know, uh, the money in the hands of a venture capitalist is, is actually the, uh, what allows for venture to actually work, right? Because it's not just the money that they're bringing. It's not a banker who gives the money and then walks away and hopes you pay your interest sometime. 
Um, but you know, so when when we invest in a company, we're expecting a twenty, a minimum of twenty x return over time, right? So so it may take five years, eight years to get that money back, but uh, you know, you know, you're not you know, we're not looking at six, seven, eight, ten percent interest rates, um, but but a magnitude more, and so. You have to work alongside the the management team, helping them become better CEOs, uh, helping them hire, helping them with the pricing model, you know, introducing them customers. Uh, so it's, it's it's a lot of work, uh, but it's, it's something we love to do. And helping create businesses, um, you know, is 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 probably the best social uh, work I've ever done. Man, you you have to come back again uh, in September to talk more. Um, uh, I say our next guest is on the board, but please, uh, I'm going to arrange, and I'm going to make you almost uh, uh, half the program, because I I think you have so much to say to our audience. Would you mind coming back in September? Absolutely. Uh, I would love to have done, and thanks for having me today. No, thank you. Uh, Again, give give us your, um, uh, how people can reach your company. Uh, so it's uh website is inventuscap.com, uh, com so i n v e n t u s c a p dot com and uh, our email addresses and uh, and a form to actually reach us is all all available up there. Well, please, Manu, come again. We want to talk Great. more. Great, thank you, Don. No, thank you. Bye. Our next guest is Monica Van Cleve. She owns Van Cleef Seafood Company, and I have to tell you, she, uh, her crab cake uh, that she sent us to test was out of this world. Uh, Monica, welcome to the program. Thank you, Don. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, um, Monica, we always ask our guests first to tell us a little bit about themselves personally before we get into anything else. Okay, um, I'm going to go ahead, if you don't mind, and combine my personal story with how I got to where I am today because it's so tightly intertwined, if you don't mind. You're our guest. Okay, so I'm from Pennsylvania, Virginia, which is a small town in Virginia, about 60 miles south of Washington, D.C., born and raised there. And I grew up working in um, a family in what at the time was a tiny, tiny family seafood uh, market in what we called a crab shack. Um, Don, if you could think of the size of probably a a single family car garage, (laughs) it's so, so tiny. Um, And my mom started the company because she had the belief that she could provide better quality seafood to the community than she could find herself. And like I said, humble beginnings, the small, small uh, crab shack, and who better to um, bring on board as her labor force than her family. (laughs) So I grew up steaming thousands of crabs uh, a week, and it was hot, and it was sweaty, and it was gross and not glamorous at all, but it taught me, it's probably one of the best work experiences I've, I've ever had, and it taught me to work uh, as a team and patience for that, especially when your team is your family. Um, it taught me a very strong work, work ethic at a very young age. And we, you know, we, we did all this as a family. Um, from the small shack, we, we worked hard and we thrived. And eventually we grew into a larger restaurant 
and uh, seafood market and catering division. We had a gift store. And it was really a profound uh, feeling to watch the fruits of your labor pay off as you're growing and, uh, you know, we're garnering media attention, customers are, are driving hours to come and, and get these creations that, uh, you know, you're, you're creating with your family and you're so passionate about. So we grew into this larger um, seafood market and we had customers telling us, oh, you know, you need to get your products, you need to get, especially the crab pie that you had. I was a very special product to us and our family. Um, one day you need to get it. It would be so cool if you got it on restaurant uh, shelves, or I'm sorry, retail shelves. And we knew we had this opportunity. Um, we knew that there was this level of success that was out there that we wanted to reach. We just didn't know how to get there or when it would come about. So I graduated from high school, and I pursued a degree eight hours south of where I grew up, down in South Carolina at Clemson University. And I majored in Chinese international trade, and I went to China for six months. And that's really where I grew as a person, and especially at a young age, and, and my independence, and, and gained the confidence that when I came back, I knew I wanted to take on a great challenge. So it was then, shortly after I graduated and, and you know, went back to Virginia, that a uh, reality show casting call came across my desk, <laughs> and I answered it, and it was from the producers of Shark Tank. So it was a business reality show, but it was for food entrepreneurs, and it was for food entrepreneurs who always believed or believed that they had a product that deserved to be on supermarket shelves. And it was at that time I knew that this was our opportunity to see how far we could go with these products that we knew had the potential to be successful. If we were ever going to have a chance to introduce it to a large audience, this was it. And so I kind of took one for the team <laughs> and went on. And remarkably, I filmed in February of 2013, and by September, we were mass-produced by a co-packer and online for sale nationally uh, before it aired. And from there, two months later, we were on QVC. And ever since then, we've just been riding that momentum. Um, and, and from there, we've gone you know, smaller retailers. Now we're jumping to large retailers and Whole Foods and giant food um, you know, and, and large catalogs. Um, and it's been a fun ride, and it's, it's just the beginning. From all of this that you would share with our audience? Oh, I have learned so many things. And um, the number one thing is to um, get it in writing. When you are a small business and you are starting uh, into a new industry, maybe you, a new realm, you need to make sure that you get everything in writing. And we have, our very first manufacturer uh, wanted to work off a gentleman's agreement. And we were so eager to get our products produced, uh, we naively went, uh, agreed to that. And it cost us uh, a lot of emotional strife and, and legal fees down the road. So right off the bat, uh, I've learned to get everything you do in writing, especially when you are dealing with large manufacturers and retailers and things like that. So that would be number one. Okay, keep going. <laughs> number two. Number two. 
I'm sorry, I didn't hear if you asked for how many you asked for. <laughs> um, well, the, the, this is a show where we hope other entrepreneurs teach uh, our audience the, 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 the mistakes to avoid and uh, the ways of doing things. And uh, you seem to have, you've taken a, a small little shop and you and your family have now made it into uh, a national, almost national uh, food supplier. And you must have learned some things that could help our other audience, our, uh, our audience. Absolutely. So, yes, number one, for those that are listening, get everything in writing. It is very, very important. Um, number two, um, once you make it into the retailer or you get on the shelf, most people think that your job is done and, you, you know, that's the main battle. But the true battle is staying on the shelf. So make sure that once you put all of that work and all of that energy into finally getting onto the supermarket shelf of, you know, that one retailer, just know that that's just the beginning. And you need to work just as hard as you did to get on the shelf to stay on the shelf. And how did you do that? Well, you know, and we're still working on that. Um, that's something that we work on daily, and we will for as long as, you know, we're on the supermarket shelves. But to do that, you have to be uh, on the battleground, basically. You need to be in the stores. Um, you can't rely on the department managers or the store employees to, to know and, and report what's going on. You have to be down there. You have to be merchandising. You have to have your eyes on your product at all times. Um, and it's it's tedious, but it's something you got to do. You've got to put in that work to stay on the shelves. And that's something that you know we we work on on a daily basis. Um, and, and demo programs and things like that. Uh, you know, we, me, my mom, and my sister, the three owners of the company, we are the ones that go in and launch the demos. Uh, for every new retailer, and that's extremely important, especially when your product is based on such a, um, a story of like ours, a family story. Well, uh, so you go in and you do a lot of the work, and you uh, you go in and sample and do things like that. Am I right? Right. Mm -hmm. You talk about, you know, and you, you explain the story to the customers. You relate to them. You get them involved in your story. Um, and not only it gets them to try and buy the product, but it gets them to come back because they feel good about it. Um, you know, customers love relating um, and interacting with the owners of the company. It's very important. Well, do you, do you use coupons or, or do you try to get into the circulars? What are some of the things that you do uh, to get them? Because I tell you, once you sample your product, you want to go back for more. <laughs> yeah. Right, but you do need follow-up programs, and we put together what we call a merchandising plan. And we make sure that we stay in the retailer's e-blast, uh, or we get in the circulars on a, on a regular schedule. We put together promotional schedules on our side um, for, to correlate with holidays that are coming up. Uh, a lot of our demos that we do are um, aligned with the store's events or Labor Day or, you know, fourth quarter's coming up. So Thanksgiving, Christmas, things like that. You've got to stay on top of all of these um, events and holidays for all of, all of the stores and retailers. And, yes, coupons is, is one of them as well. Well, um, 
but you also uh, sell via your uh, website, correct? We do. Mm-hmm. Yes, we do sell online as well. Um, What's your website? What What is your website? The website is vancleavesseafood.com. So V-A-N-C-L-E-V-E seafood.com. Okay. Well, I recommend it uh, to the audience because it, it was so good. In fact, I'm going to ask you to send me a couple more because I had to split it with my wife. <laughs> oh, I'd be happy to do so. Um, uh, we always try to, uh, whenever possible, to try the products or, or read the books of our guests ahead of time. And yours is one of the more enjoyable times uh, for us. Uh, but, but now you've given us two. What is the third thing you've learned? The third thing I've learned um, is that failure is inevitable, and there are going to be hiccups along the way, and the most important thing is to learn from them. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs, they read tons of articles or books, and, you know, that is probably paramount. Number one, you learn from your past mistakes. Um, one thing that we have learned to do to help uh, learn from these mistakes, I keep a notebook by my desk. And any time that I feel like I've failed or there's been a hiccup, um, even if it's not all on our end, I write it down and we immediately make a company policy um, on, on that subject so it never happens again. And you must do it immediately. Uh, I've done it in the past where, you know, something has happened. We're like, oh, we really need to, you know, make a company policy about that in the future. And it never happens. And that's very dangerous because you're setting yourself up for another failure. So you need to do it immediately. Attack that problem. Make it a company policy and move forward. Um, what, what are some of your products, and how do you plan to expand your products? Oh, we're constantly doing product development. Um, right now, we have so we what you have is a blue crab pie, and actually, it's a very special uh, recipe. And that's what we started with. That's what I took on um, the, the reality show, Supermarket Superstar. It's actually a 200-year-old recipe that was handed down to my mom uh, many, many years ago from a descendant of Stratford Hall. So it's Robert E. Lee's family favorite dish was blue crab pie. Um, but we also have a red crab pie using Atlantic red crab meat. So it's, it's domestic crab and it's sustainable. And it's just, it has a sweeter profile. We have a scallop and bacon pie now, which is so good. It's, it's the same thing as like a, a bacon-wrapped scallop, which everybody loves, you know, but it's baked in a, a pastry crust. We have scallop and bacon phyllo cups, so they're appetizer forms. We had a lot of retailers loving the products. They wanted them in smaller um, handheld uh, bites, so we're, we're producing those, and we're coming out with a scallop cake, which nobody has, and it's like a scallop burger. Um, it's absolutely delicious. Um, so those are a few things um, that we have going on and in, in, in the future. Well, uh, where do you get your seafood from, and how do you assure the quality? Oh, that is a good question. <laughs> um, this is something that we spend a lot of time and effort on. Um, seafood is a tricky industry, and you have to stay on top of it, and you have to, to be on top of your supplier's um, with every order that comes in. And we get our seafood from m many different places. So the blue crab, um, sometimes it comes from Louisiana. 
which is domestic. We'll get domestic crab. Um, sometimes it comes from Mexico, which is the same species of blue crab that we get, uh, you know, from the Chesapeake Bay. The Atlantic red crab meat is caught um, seven miles off the coast of our, our um, east coast here from Maine down to North Carolina. And, uh, 2,000 feet down, so it's a cold water crab, and that's a sustainable crab. Um, our scallops come from Argentina, and they also come from the Bay, and those are both also sustainable, um, just to name a few. But yeah, you staying on top of the seafood suppliers is a full-time job, and you just have to um, you know, be diligent about uh, traceability and knowing exactly where it's coming from and having confidence with those suppliers that where they're saying it's coming from, it is. And so we work very, very tirelessly with our suppliers to make sure that we are getting top quality seafood because it makes such a difference in, in the quality of the product, as you can imagine. Yes, I, I can, being a fisherman and, and knowing a... a Oh, you're fisherman. I didn't know that. <laughs> That's great. Well, in my old age, I became um, not on the scale that you are, but certainly um, uh, I understand. I'm, I'm, I'm more of a trapper. <laughs> but you know, the worst day of fishing is better than the best day at work. That's my <laughs> That's motto. Unless you, unless you can combine the two, which I have done. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let me ask you one last question, which is, um, and uh, you mentioned your sister. Are there other people in, uh, from your family involved? Um, I have my mother, uh, and yes, my sister. No one else is involved as far as ownership, but um, my fiance, my dad, my brother, and my sister-in-law, they are the biggest. Uh, support system I could ever ask for, and they are our cheerleaders, which to me um, is a is in the place of an employee. You know, they they lift us up and they support us. So in a sense, I feel like they're a part of the company. But as far as ownership, it's, it's me, my mom, and my sister. Oh, and uh, how do you divide the work? Uh, interesting question. Considering my sister is uh, eight months pregnant now, <laughs> so she'll be going off the grid, and so that's the easy way to divide it up: uh, half to mom, half to me. <laughs> but we have our strengths and weaknesses, and and you know, my mom is great at product development, so she handles all of that. She's also, you know, she does most of the operation. Um, I'm in charge a lot of the the day to day um, executing of, of follow up and uh, marketing and and things like that. It's very important that uh, uh, many, uh, many uh, com companies have uh, uh, floundered on that. What, what do you, uh, how do you, how do you, uh, how, how do you um, settle disputes? With a family company, that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, we try to be as you know, biased as possible, try and make sure that we keep personal uh, family stuff out of it, and we do it just in a professional way, um, just like any other company. When we started the company, we made job positions for ourselves and job contracts, which is very important, and I feel for a family uh, company to do. 
So you dole out specific uh, expectations for everyone, just like any other company. And um, and so that's how we have stayed successful and, and sane, really. <laughs> Are you there? Hello? Are you there? for another lesson that I've learned. Is that correct? in person. 
And my sister, who was, you know, seven months pregnant at the time, was very upset about this at first, but we got her and convinced her, you know, to, to get in the, the big overalls, and we all wore them the entire time. And we were told from multiple people that just strangers came up to us, and they said, you have the most memorable booth out of the entire show, and there are thousands of booths from hundreds of different companies in that show. It is one of the largest trade shows um, in the nation. And we also had an incredibly successful show as far as sales go as well and leads from large, large retailers. And we walked away with a marketing lesson here where you do not have to spend a ton of money to get Garner marketing attention. You just have to think creatively outside of the box. So I thought that that was, you know, a, a fun marketing lesson for, for other entrepreneurs and, and business owners. Well, uh, one of the reasons you're on the show is I remembered you from the Fancy Food Show. So, oh, oh so you saw the waiters then. <laughs> uh, uh, I have to move on to our next guest. But, uh, uh, Monica Van Cleve, tell, tell us again uh, your website and uh, – Please, if you think about it, send me a couple of more because they were out of this world. I'll sure do that. Thank you, Don. Okay, it's vancleavesseafoodcompany.com. And it was been a, it's been a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you so much. No, it's been a pleasure to have you. You've been terrific. And well, thank thanks. you. Yeah, thank you. Have a great night. You too. Bye-bye. Our next guest, who's been very patient, and by the way, uh, I've never had more people email me before a show than Fatima Quolo, who's executive director of the Miss Art Deco beauty pageant, and she has a very unusual approach. Uh, Fatima, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Don. And thank you for being so patient. Uh, <laughs> That's okay. Um, Fatima, uh, we always ask our guests first to say a little bit about themselves before we do anything else. So tell us a little bit about yourself personally. Okay, well, I my name is Fatima Coelho. I actually am the director of the Miss Art Deco pageant here in Florida. And uh, I used to be a contestant myself many years ago. Um, the pageant started off as a fundraiser for League Against AIDS at the time back in the 90s because that was like a really big thing back then. And I always liked the concept because Art Deco is one of the biggest things that uh, is part of Miami Beach here in South Florida. It's one of uh, one of the most historic events and um, we, our title holders got to be part of yearly. And I've always loved the concept that I decided to uh, start it up again in 2011 and since then, I've been growing. Uh, we've been giving our title holders a chance to do different events throughout the year. Uh, they learn about interviews. They do red carpet events. They even get to compete in the state pageant of Miss Florida USA. Well, well that's terrific. Yeah. And you, uh, judging by, by your picture, you're still gorgeous. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, but now, you, you have an unusual uh, thing uh, – uh, take on things, which I, I found interesting, and apparently my audience does as well. You're arguing that uh, a beauty pageant uh, 
participants make excellent employees. And I'd like you to expand on that because uh, it's a very interesting characteristic and um, characterizing of it. So the floor is now yours. Absolutely. Well, many people who don't know much about beauty pageants, you know, they usually try to compare us to toddlers and tiara when really that's not the case. Um, a lot of our pageant contestants, one of the biggest uh, part of competing is interviewing, interviewing not just and speaking about different topics, knowing about current events. Um, they always say the crown begins in the interview room. That's where it's always won, more than on stage. Um, I always say that if you can stand in front of a group to 600 to 4,000 people and draw a question about anything, whether it's current events, whether it's business, whether it's platform or awareness, and answer it, you can you can definitely um, you could definitely conquer any job interview. It really, it, yes, it does. It really uh, helps you have more confidence in any job interview, whether you in any career, any industry. Well, that's true, but, you know, people th uh, think of beauty con con contest participants as, uh, uh, I don't want to use the term, but not having talent or being intelligent, and yet you're saying that, on the contrary, they're not. Can you, Absolutely. Kind of expand, can you expand on that? Yes, many uh, beauty queens, they have talent. Many of them, there's many pageants out there, um, such as the Miss America, which is one of the oldest pageant systems in the world. Um, they require a talent, whether it's singing, whether it's playing an instrument, dancing, and many are offered scholarships, and scholarships that are offered to uh, go to different colleges as well as Miss USA. So it's not just about uh, beauty alone. You're being judged on a full package. And that's well, what many people don't know that part. Well, you know, um, uh, what brought it up, in fact, one, one uh, uh, email said it, uh, Miss Congen... Oh, Congen... Miss Congeniality with yes. uh, Sandra Bullock, yes. Yes, uh, it was interesting. Uh, I, the background on that, I, I, I found it fascinating and watched the program continually. I, I, I've seen the movie two or three times. And, and there it indicated that the women were more than just uh, uh, beauty people, but rather had talents. Uh, but w what kind of roles uh, can, can beauty pageant participants uh, participate in that takes advantage of, of all of these things in your mind? In my mind, we have many industries, people who want to be fashion designers, uh, lawyers, we have a lot of lawyers, doctors, uh, we have uh, nurses as well. Um, we have future business owners as well, too. Uh, many, who start, many who are part of a nonprofit organization for different awarenesses. Uh, that, that's pretty much a lot in, in, as far as definitely different varieties. Well, what is, what is the tip? There, I know there's no typical... But generally, why do uh, women enter such contests, contests, and what do they hope to gain from them? 
Well, many entered a contest for starters uh, to win the scholarship. Uh, many um, compete against themselves to build up um, poise. Many um, build up um, like to have inter like to have different experiences as far as um, whether they want to um, have the winning moment. Uh, they they're challenging themselves and basically. Uh, opening their minds to different and better things, different um different opportunities. Well that, that's very that's very true. I've for several years covered the Miss American pageant and I was always imp impressed um and it never came across on T V how really smart most of the contestants were. And uh, uh I, I, you know whenever I, I wrote it in my uh, my stories it always came back. Most of it was uh, edited out by the editors, and they just talked about various things. Um, do you, uh, would you recommend your daughter to uh, participate in such events? Uh, yes, I would. Yes, I would. Uh, well, the depending, there's different. There's different types of pageants. There are some that require talent, just such as the Miss America. Um, we also have the Miss USA that does not require talent, but there is scholarship involved. Um, it teaches them how to be a spokesperson, a spokesmodel. Many have been on um, newscasters, even the Hollywood. Um, we have different um, celebrities today that have been in pageants that are successful today. That's very true. But do they also make good salespeople? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Uh, many uh, there's many beauty queens that are involved in different charity awarenesses, whether it's the uh, Best Buddies, whether it's for cancer or et cetera. And many of them uh, use this to raise funds for different awarenesses. So that's that's one of the requirements as far as being a beauty queen once you win the crown is to uh, promote that. So it's basically a lot of promoting, um, a lot of fundraising, and if they can fundraise for different awarenesses, and definitely they can uh, become great salespeople. Well, well uh, given that, um, do you believe uh, beauty pageant participants should uh, emphasize that in their resumes? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, depending on different, uh, they they can be great job candidates. Depending on different industries, what they're uh, applying for, it's great to add that in their uh, resume. Well, uh, do you, do you find they stand a better chance um, if they, uh, since they combine in m most cases beauty with brains, that uh, this gives them a leg up? Yes, of course. Of course, we have many of them that have become teachers and become role models for uh, of future generations. Well, I'm I'm sitting here just uh, as I say, uh, uh, just stunned by the reaction to to people who are listening in. I'm trying to uh, I'm shuffling through the emails uh, for some of the questions they asked. What do you think are the uh, Here's one of them. What do you think are the two or three most important things a contestant uh, should have? The three most important things that a contestant must have is, number one, they should definitely have the drive. 
Uh, number two, they should definitely have an open mind to learn new things, to learn training. Um, there's a lot of training, not just so much in interview, also as far as outer and inner as well, too. Um, they should have devotion as far as how dedicated they are to physically and mentally in order to compete. Well, uh, in a typical contest, there's usually just winners. How do, uh, how do you teach them to deal with not being named number one? Well, we tell them that this is like playing the lottery. Um, competing in a pageant is just like applying for that one job. Um, there's, there will be an, a, a job application that may be open. You're going to have many applicants um, apply for it, but there's always going to be one applicant that would get hired. Same thing goes with the pageants. You will have 50 to 100 contestants, but there's always going to be one crown. Um, I always tell them it's not just about winning the crown. It's about learning. It's about networking. It's about uh, growing as a person. Because many contestants may not been may not have ever won a crown, but they have gained a lot more for whatever goals they want to do in their future in their careers. Well, I think it would be very difficult for, for for me to walk out on the stage and uh, compete like that, and I'm sure a lot of people. Oh, here's the, another email that, that, in fact, just came in, that uh, uh, how, how do you deal with someone who suddenly gets stage fright? Well, it takes a lot of training and preparation prior to the stage to competing on stage. Um, yes, we have had one or two contestants in the past that have frozen on stage. And well, how we deal with it is we just let them know that if it's your first time, it's okay. It happens. It's just a matter of picking yourself up and trying it again. If people wanted to learn more about you and, and your pageant and, and participating, how do they do it? Well, they can definitely visit our website at MissArtDecoPageant.com. Um, that's M-I-S-S-A-R-T-D-E-C-O Pageant.com. Well, and if they want to talk to you, can they call you or email you? Yes, definitely. They can email me at MissArtDecoPageant at gmail.com. And uh, I also have my hotline number, which is 305-753-1224. Well, because uh, uh, it, it, it's been fascinating, and you've given us a whole different look at um, at uh, the, the beauty pageant world. And I'm, I'm, I hope our audience, well, I know they they were looking forward to it. Because no, thank you. Uh, they kept talking about it. Uh, as I say, uh, as as you've been on, they have been um, uh, emailing me about it. So uh, I want you. When is your pageant next pageant? Well, our next pageant for Miss Art Deco is going to be held on January ninth of two thousand sixteen. Uh, it's going to be hosted a week before the Art Deco Weekend Festival in Miami Beach, which is um July fifteenth to seventeenth. Well, um uh, the, the the contestants have time to uh 
uh, enter the contest? Yes, absolutely. Do you have to? You don't have to be a, a Florida resident or anything, do you? Well, for right now, we are keeping it in Florida, but eventually, we do want to expand to other states. That is our goal. But for right now, the reason why we're keeping it in Florida is because our winner gets to compete in the state televised Miss Florida USA pageant. Ah. Well, uh, here's another question. Uh, how does one become a judge for such a uh, contest? That just came our, across my our judges. Our judges are selected randomly. Um, they are selected by business owners, uh, people in the industry of television, fashion, modeling, uh, owners as far as uh, people who are former uh, pageant contestants or people who have been in the industry of pageantry. Well, Fatima, I've learned uh, a great deal, and I hope our audience as well. You have to come back. Uh, later in the, in the year and talk more. Oh, definitely, definitely, absolutely. Please do because it's really terrific. Thank you. Thank you so much, Don. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you would like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net that's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.